Let me say what a wonderful pleasure it's been to be with you this whole weekend. Uh, I bring you greetings again from Westminster Presbyterian Church in Atlanta, where I serve as the associate pastor, and I have great tales of hospitality and heartfelt worship and Christian fellowship with, with you folks here at Independent Pres. I'm so thankful for the invitation to be with you and to bring the word uh, to you uh, this morning in corporate worship. Uh, if you have a handout before you, you can see at the top of our page, if you've been here for other services this weekend, that this topic fits with the theme of the newness that Christ brings. Uh, we're going to be talking about that a little more in just a moment, but, but the topic is singing. And as I thought about this topic for Sunday School at Independent Press, having sat on the front row for the past number of services this weekend, just getting uh, caught up into the heavens with all of the voices singing this way in this wonderful acoustic space, I, I figured this weekend that teaching on singing to Independent Press is like trying to convince the Pope to be Catholic. Uh, th this is, uh, this, I come humbly to you uh, as we open the word. But God's Word does call us to sing, and so I hope our time this morning will be an encouragement to you as we remember some of the truths of God's Word and, and why we gather uh, together to sing His praise. Uh, as you can tell with the handout, um, I, I envision this time to be a little more of a teaching time, uh, Sunday school uh, hour, and, uh, and I, hope, uh, I hope that style of unfolding God's Word is okay with you. Uh, let me read from Psalm 96. Uh, the first six verses only, and then we will dive in. God's Word says, O oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless His name. Tell of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him, strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Well, there we have it in verse 1, sing to the Lord a new song. If you've been with us since Friday, we've talked about the newness that Christ brings, especially from the perspective of the Old Testament. And what I have in mind here are different facets of what it means, particularly for a Christian, to belong to the new, heavenly, and imperishable kingdom that Christ has inaugurated in His death, life, death, resurrection, and the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost. What does it mean for Christ to have ushered into human history the very power of heaven in a redemptive way for the building of an eternal kingdom. And as we looked at that from the Old Testament, particularly from Old Testament prophets, I made the point that, uh, that the prophets, as it were, were standing and looking out over a series of mountain ranges. In fact, Friday I, I talked about driving to Montreat, North Carolina with my family this summer, one of my favorite places to go. And one of the other things we like to do as a wind family in Montreat is climb Lookout Mountain. And you can see storms rolling in from Lookout Mountain as you survey the horizon. And, uh, and God put His Old Testament prophets, as it were, on Lookout Mountain. Uh, the, the letter that, Paul, that Peter writes uh, in 1 Peter 1 uh, says that the prophets stood on the cusp of the, 
of the age-to-come promises of God. And they looked out, and, and fascinatingly, Peter says, by the Spirit of Christ in them, Old Testament prophets searched and inquired diligently concerning the future suffering and glory of the Messiah. Now, they didn't have all of the details because Peter says that they searched and inquired carefully discerning what time and what person uh, the Messiah was going to be. They didn't know when he would come or precisely who he would be in the flesh. It was John the Baptist, the the final Old Testament prophet, as it were, who who had the great privilege of, of pointing his finger to say, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Nevertheless, the Old Testament prophets spoke gloriously by the Spirit of Christ in them of the new things that Christ would bring. So we've looked at God's promise to give His people a new heart from Ezekiel 36. The very power of the resurrected Christ will come into the hearts of God's people. Indeed, came into the remnant in the Old Testament before Jesus even became incarnate. Then we looked at Isaiah 62, a great text of God's eternal marriage with His people and how He will bestow on them a new name. Ultimately, the new name that Jesus receives has risen from the dead. But now we take a little bit of break from the prophets and look at, look at a psalm. And the reference to the newness that Christ brings, as we'll see, comes in the form of a command. God commands His people to sing uh, to Him. Let's get it out on the table that, that not everybody considers himself or herself a singer. I don't consider myself a singer, um, but I'm, I'm very privileged to worship in a congregation where I, I can't really hear myself sing. Uh, we have a singing congregation as well, and I know that's true here. So maybe you, you remember first coming to Independent Press and you think to yourself, these people really sing, but at least I can't hear myself. Uh, that's, that, that can be a good thing. Three times God calls us to sing in the opening verses of this psalm, and then, and then the psalm gives us reasons for singing. But before we get to the commands themselves or, or the reasons, let's just think for a moment about why God wants us to sing. Why does God want us to sing? You can see on your handout I have a number of reasons. Uh, surely we could add more reasons. But first, I say here, singing is expressive. Singing is expressive. The human life is richer than can be captured in the spoken word. There are some things that transcend the spoken word and demand to be expressed in song. Martin Luther said, next to the word of God, music deserves the highest praise. Singing is expressive of the fullness of human life, but singing, it seems to me, is also expressive of the fullness of human personality. God made us body and soul. We are the image of God, body and and soul. And there's something about singing that aligns the whole of who we are. Not only our heart, our emotions, our thoughts, but our bodies as well. Uh, and the psalmist expresses this in Psalm 84 My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. So the fullness of human life, the fullness of human personality, and then as you've experienced week after week, Singing expresses the fullness of Christ's body. Uh, When you sing together, particularly with other believers, you are reminded that you belong to something greater than yourself. You're being encouraged as you hear one another sing. Singing in worship reminds us that we're not alone in the Christian life. Singing strengthens our bonds with other people. 
Singing shakes off the weariness of the morning. And then singing is expressive, of course, in its ultimate respect. Uh, when, we, when we sing to God and express the most wonderful and most transcendent and most beautiful thing about us, uh, that we were made for God. So we express our longing for God. We express our thanks to God. We express our worship of God through song. It is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant, and a song of praise is fitting. Psalm 147.1. Secondly, notice singing is responsive. We express our heart's desire by responding to things outside of us uh, with song. Job 38 has a fascinating verse that, that poetically describes God creating the visible world. And it says, uh, when he created the world as a theater of his glory, billions upon billions of angels responded in song and shouted for joy. We can respond to God's creative work. The first human words in the Bible, if you remember uh, in Genesis, are a responsive song, as it were. A song bursting forth from Adam as God brings his bride to him. He sings in response to God's good gift of Eve, and he says, This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. It's a love song in response to the joy that he's experiencing witnessing his bride. The beauty and wonder of marital design, the beauty of romantic love, uh, demands a response in song. And, and when you turn on the radio, you hear echoes of Adam's song, but certainly twisted by the fall. So many love songs, both uh, owe to Adam uh, the wonder of romantic love, and and they owe to Adam the fall into sin in some of the ways that's expressed. But singing in worship tells us that we should respond far beyond the mystery of human love uh, to the love of God, to his existence, to his wisdom, to his works. The great composer Leonard Bernstein Uh, once recounted a conversation that his brother had with a friend about Beethoven. Okay, that Bernstein's brother with a friend talking about Beethoven, why Beethoven was the greatest composer to ever live. Was it the harmony? Was it the rhythm? Was it the counterpoint? Was it the orchestration? Uh, They were debating these things. And this is what his friend said. Beethoven has the inexplicable ability to know what the next note has to be. When he really did it, he produced an entity that always seemed to me to have been previously written in heaven and then merely dictated to him. He turned out pieces of breathtaking rightness. Rightness. That's the word. Our boy has the power to make you feel at the finish that something right is in the world. There is something that checks throughout, something we can trust something that will never let us down. I find this quote amazing because I think what it's getting at by God's common grace is that at its best, singing is responsive to what is right. And there's nothing more right, nothing more ordered, nothing more righteous than the being and glory of God. God is right. All His works are done in righteousness. How much more when God becomes your God and you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, and and you know Him as your covenant-keeping God, when you have a sense of His grace to you, and you adore Him in the secret places of your heart, 
and you know it's right, you have to go beyond the spoken word. You have to respond in song. And this is why I think in in the Bible we see again and again uh, songs being composed after the mighty works of God take place in redemptive history. Uh, We could march through redemptive history and see all the ways that God's people respond in song after the big events of redemptive history. Think about after uh, the Exodus from Egypt, famous Song of Moses, the Song of the Exodus. Then Moses, Exodus 15.1, Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Then uh, we could point to King Hezekiah when he renewed the Passover meal uh, in Judah. 2 Chronicles 30, verse 21, the priests praised the Lord day by day, singing with all their might to the Lord. Psalm 96 is actually a response to a big event in redemptive history. Many of the verses from Psalm 96 are, are found in 1 Chronicles 16. Well, what happened there? Well, David is singing after the Ark of the Covenant is brought into uh, Jerusalem. This visible sacrament, as it were, symbol of God's presence with His people, comes home to to the city where God had placed His name, comes to its resting place in Jerusalem, and David sings. So singing is a way that people remember, uh, the way they celebrate, the way they praise God in response Uh, to his works. And then this leads us to the third benefit I have on your handout. Uh, Singing is instructive. Uh, We know this. Uh, We we remember songs. We remember songs from our childhood. We remember songs, pop songs from the radio, if you're like me, and associate them with particular moments in history. This is why we teach our hymns uh, to our children. Uh, because one of the blessings of hymn singing is that you sing the same songs from age 8 to age 80. You might forget your children's ages, as I sometimes do, but you will not forget the lyrics to particular songs you heard growing up, from the Beatles or from Elvis or from Aretha or from George Strait. This is why God wants us to sing to Him. He wants us to remember His mighty works. He wants us to teach his works to the next generation. As verse 3 declares in Psalm 96, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. Well, at last, we can ask the question, what is the new thing, the new work, the big event in redemptive history that God wants us to sing about when he commands us to sing a new song? What are we to respond to as we express our hearts in song and instruct both our own hearts and the hearts of those around us? Well, Psalm 96 doesn't exactly say. And yet, there is a a hint here, I think. The hint is found in, in David's call for all the earth to sing this new song. David is envisioning a time like the prophets of the Old Testament, yet future for him, when the whole world will have not only 
the obligation to sing to God, but the redemptive opportunity to sing to God. David is looking forward by the Spirit of Christ in him to the age when Christ will achieve a worldwide salvation in his life, death, and resurrection. He is bringing and has indeed inaugurated a worldwide salvation in the fullness of time. And I believe this is what Psalm 96 is calling the people of God to sing about. We can see why we're called to sing this new song. This is a song that glories in the new salvation that Christ has brought, the new heart that he gives, to go back to Ezekiel, the new name that he bestows in Isaiah 62. As we're going to see in worship this morning, it's a response to the new covenant that Christ inaugurates, spoken of in Jeremiah 31. And ultimately, it's a song in anticipation of the new creation, the new heaven and earth which we'll look about at, at our evening service uh, tonight. Uh, Martin Luther, when he translated the German Bible, uh, the Bible into German, uh, wrote a kind of title over Psalm 96. And in English, that title reads this way. This is fascinating. A psalm regarding the kingdom of Christ and the spread of the gospel over the whole world. Now, Luther understood uh, the deep redemptive dimensions of this call to sing a new song. He, he understood that it's about the new and lasting kingdom of Christ and the salvation that he brings into human history and, and how this glorious salvation demands a new song. It's the great work of God in redemptive history. And, and if, I, if I could add this little point, we, we should be singing the psalms. I'm so thankful that the, the church here sings psalms but I do believe that, that Christ's accomplishment of redemption in the fullness of time gives biblical warrant for singing more than psalms. As we advance along the timeline of redemptive history, even though the psalms themselves are full of references to, to Christ and to redemption, as this one is, we can, we can sing by the grace of God uh, in light of the cross and the resurrection. Well, we could, we could stop here and, uh, and simply say... This is the wonderful work of God, our salvation. We should express our heart to Him. We should respond to Him. We should instruct others in light of this great work. Uh, we could leave it here, but, but the psalm goes on. And it gives us specific reasons why we should give praise to God. And the deepest reason that the psalm gives is because of who God is. Verse 4 says, For great is the Lord. And greatly to be praised, he is to be feared above all gods. We are to look at God's works of creation and redemption. We are to see the worldwide salvation that Christ has won for the nations. But ultimately, we're to look at those works so that we might trace back from the works to the worker. To behold the glory of who God is in himself. We are to see that God himself is the heartbeat that drives human expression in song. God himself is the reality that demands a response. The ultimate lesson that God's mighty works teach us is the intrinsic greatness of the Lord. 
There's a quote from Charles Spurgeon on Psalm 96. We had a guest preacher come in and he quoted this from Spurgeon and I wrote it down furiously. I sometimes go back to this quote uh, from Spurgeon before corporate worship. Uh, so I encourage you to do that. Uh, Spurgeon said this on, on Psalm 96.4. Great is the Lord, greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. Praise should be proportionate to its object. Therefore, let it be infinite when rendered unto the Lord. We cannot praise Him too much, too often, too zealously, too carefully, too joyfully. He deserves that nothing in His worship should be little, but all the honor rendered unto Him should be given in largeness of heart with utmost zeal for His glory. Is that not a quote to read before you enter into corporate worship? Let it be infinite when rendered to the Lord. So we should sing to God in, in the face of a hard week. Maybe for you in the face of a hard year. Uh, because God remains intrinsically song-worthy. And if we need a thousand tongues to sing our great Redeemer's praise, we need ten thousand tongues to sing of the intrinsic glory of our God that is revealed in His marvelous works. So our song and worship finds its first cause and, and final resting place at the feet of the God who dwells in unapproachable light. It is the glory of who He is that He reveals in His works. Well, having commanded us to behold the glory of God and tell of His salvation, having led us upward to the intrinsic greatness of God in this psalm, uh, in verse 5, the psalmist turns outward to His works to give one more evidence of His greatness. And then, in contrast to all the false gods of the nations, it tells us that the Lord made the heavens. The Lord made the heavens. Uh, verse 5 references the idols of the nations. That, that, that's a kind of sarcastic word that's used in the Hebrew. It, it, it basically means uh, little, little godlets. And it's highlighting the worthlessness of the idols. In fact, the ESV translates it worthless idols. And nothing undercuts the vanity of the godlets that we run after than the doctrine of creation, that God, by the word of his power, made all things. He made all things, and this reminds us that we owe everything to him, that, that God is the source of our every good, that he forever outshines and outlasts all of the idols of fallen man. And when it says, our God made the heavens, it's possible that the psalmist is simply talking about the visible sky. You look up at the visible sky, especially if you saw the sky last night, uh, it was particularly beautiful. But, but I think a case can be made that, that the psalmist here, when it says the Lord made the heavens, that the psalmist is actually talking about something beyond the visible sky, and he's referencing the invisible heavens. Uh, the place of God's preeminent revelation of His glory. Uh, what the Bible elsewhere calls the heaven of heavens. Heaven itself. I say this for two reasons. Number one, the Psalms elsewhere point to the greatness of God and do so frequently by reminding us that God's glory is revealed in heaven. Uh, Psalm 11, the Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Psalm 123, to you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. 
Psalm 15, the heaven are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of men. So we're talking about the created realm. Heaven is a created realm. And it's a realm that is filled with the visible glory of God. It's the place where the angels serve him. It's the place where saints departed adore him. What better way to contrast the idols that man makes on earth than pointing the reader to God's creation of the invisible realm of heaven itself? I think this fits with verse 6. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Certainly, the, the, the physical sanctuary in Jerusalem could be in view. But if it is, uh, we need to remember that that earthly temple was, was only a replica. Uh, the temple in Jerusalem was only a scale model of the invisible realm of heaven itself, where God dwelt. And so the second reason I think the psalmist could be mentioning the creation of the invisible heavens itself is because this is where our songs ascend. Our songs rise up in the name of Christ to heaven itself. Our songs are a prayer. And Scripture says our prayers ascend like incense into the throne of heaven where Christ sanctifies them, where He pours out His blessing upon us in return. Hebrews 10 confirms this talking about when we gather together, when we come to Christ, particularly when we gather in worship here at Independent Prez, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. Not this physical location, but in worship, in spirit, we ascend into the heavens with Christ, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So here's here's what I'm getting at. Singing is not just expressive of the fullness of human personality and life and the corporate togetherness of the body. It's not only responsive to the works of God, It's not only instructive for the next generation, but we ought to sing because when we sing with a heart of faith, our singing is heavenly. In worship, we enter into that heavenly realm by the Spirit, and we join our voices to the hosts of angels and to the church triumphant and to the saints departed. We have mystic, sweet communion with those whose race is one. And we give glory to God for His works and for who He is. And this is, this is the best reason to sing in church. It's not just because of what songs do. It's not, it's not just, and hear me carefully, it's not just because of what Christ has done. Although that is central. Because it's through what Christ has done. It's through whom Christ has become. Through what He has done that our singing ascends into the throne room of God and is well-pleasing in His sight. So as we think about entering into worship this morning uh, over in the sanctuary, I want want to give you these three. I've already shown you my cards, but I, I want to give you three encouragements as you sing. Number one, I encourage you to meditate on heaven as you sing. Think, think deeply, think rigorously about the revelation of the glory of God in heaven. 
And, and, and let thoughts of the glory of God in heaven outshine uh, whatever is troubling you on the earth. Bring those troubles, bring those cares into the undiluted light of the glory of God revealed in heaven. He reigns over all. Let your songs to Him triumph over all in your life. Secondly, rehearse the wonderful works of God. Rehearse not only the great works of God in redemptive history leading to Christ, rehearse not only the great work of Jesus in His life, death, and resurrection, ascension, and Pentecost, rehearse what God has done in your life. How He has taken this great salvation and applied it to you in the power of the Holy Spirit. How He has welcomed you into the eternal kingdom that Christ has inaugurated. Tell yourself again and again what Christ has done. And when you feel too weak to sing, when your heart's not in it, say to yourself, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. And then finally, and perhaps this is the most important application, and maybe this is the thing that we so often forget, even when you're singing robustly in this hall, uh, we must remember to sing to God. Sing to God. Don't, don't just sing so that other people can hear you. Don't just sing because it's what you do as independent press. But, but in your heart, sing to God. Don't worry about how you sound. Maximize making a sound. Uh, don't let lifeless stones give more praise to God than you. So I pray as we, as we go into uh, corporate worship that God would give us the grace to sing to Him a new song, to sing to Him all the earth, sing to the Lord, bless His name, tell of His salvation from day to day. Why? For all the gods of the peoples really are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. He made the highest heavens. Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. Well, we have just a couple of minutes, but perhaps I could use one of those minutes uh, to pray. That'd be all right. Let's pray together. Our great God and King, we thank You for the gift of song. We thank You that You not only command us to sing, but You instruct us in in how to sing. And indeed, You tell us what to sing about. And above all, You tell us to whom we ought to be singing. Father, we thank You for Your marvelous works, for the works of creation, for the stunning beauty that is the arena of our worship even now. We thank You for the beauty of, of the visible sky and all of the heavenly bodies. We thank You for the wonderful creatures that You have made, the wild diversity of creation that displays the multifaceted wisdom of the triune God. We thank You for making us as, as the exquisite crown of Your creation, for making us in Your image, body and soul. 
And we thank you especially that when we were lost in sin, having plunged headlong into total destruction, you saw us and loved us and redeemed us out of sin and death. Even while we were yet sinners and enemies and hostile to you, you saved us by sending your Son in the likeness of human flesh to satisfy divine justice, to be plunged into the darkness of hell itself for us. And we thank you that you raised him from the dead, that he burst forth in unclouded glory, and that he ascended to your right hand and received the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We thank you that we are joined to him, that you've called us out of darkness into your marvelous light, that that we are so joined to Christ by the secret bond of the Holy Spirit that nothing can sever us from him. Lord, we pray that we would sing to you, that we would give praise to you, that when our hearts are downcast, we would say to our own soul, seek the Lord. Why are you downcast? Father, we pray that you would send out your light and your truth and lead us to your holy hill, that we might behold you our exceeding joy, and that you would bless independent Presbyterian church with songs of praise by the power of the Holy Spirit until the great day when we see our Savior face to face and with unrestrained song worship him with one voice. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.